0: Uh, it's good to be here tonight, it's always a joy to come to Sunship, my home away from home. And uh, my wife would love to be here, but unfortunately it's uh, easier to replace me than it is to replace her. Uh, she, she leads worship at um, both of our sites. This morning I was in uh, North Philly, I didn't preach, I listened to uh, one of our associates preach in French, and uh, someone... Interpret for him. And uh, it was an interesting time, was sort of an experiment. We have a lot of uh, French speaking Africans that come to the North Philadelphia Church from countries that uh, I had never heard of, like Burkina Faso, uh, Cameroon I had heard of, uh, Sierra Leone, and Cote d'Ivoire, and uh, Kenya, and Nigeria, and Liberia. And uh, we've got quite an interesting group, and they're full of life. They are really full of life. Uh, In July, we baptized, uh, had the joy of baptizing 10 people. Uh, Some Africans, some uh, from a mission that we work with. Uh, But both sites are doing well. And thank you again, just to remind you, you do support us faithfully every month. And uh, you've helped to uh, establish two sites in Philly, and a third one is uh, on its way. This summer, we did what we call preview services in South Philadelphia, sort of an Afro American, gentrifying neighborhood. And uh, they were very successful. And now we've moved to uh, services every other week in that neighborhood, and uh, hopefully, sometime this fall. We'll be meeting uh, regularly down there. Thankfully, uh, I can only be one place at one time, so I only have to do two services on Sunday, not three. Unless they choose to meet at 7 o'clock at night, then I can preach there too, but I I hope they don't. Uh, Pray for Philadelphia. I would like to, over the next uh, 10, 15 years, all that the Lord gives us to... uh, see at least a dozen community churches planted and filled up here. Uh, We've got some young guys the Lord has brought brought our way, who who probably will be here a lot longer than I will, and I'd like to just see them be planting churches in Philly, so pray that God will help us to uh, mentor some young guys, younger guys, to uh, plant churches in Philly. Tonight, my text is Ephesians chapter 4, the first three verses. These verses say a lot to me throughout my life, and before I read them, I'm going to give you a little insight into uh, why they've impacted me, and maybe they can help to impact you in a similar way. Uh, Many of you... Know a lot about me, but you may not know my uh, journey as a pastor theologically and denominationally. Uh, A few weeks ago, a young girl called my wife and I and asked if we would sit down with her. She had grown up in the first church that I planted in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and uh, she was quite disturbed. She had pretty much forsaken Christianity, uh, but was struggling with some things and uh, had heard that I wasn't the same person that I was 30 years ago, uh, which I hope is true of all of us, for the better. Uh, it is true of all of us, but not always for the better. So she uh, she, she called me and my wife and I drove a, an hour and met her in Starbucks. That's my office, wherever I am in Starbucks. And she uh, she shared a little bit of her story and we talked to her and encouraged her and prayed with her. And then in the middle of the conversation, she looks at me and she said, what was it that made me change? Now in order for you to understand the question, I have to give some background to what she was talking about. The first church I planted was a Baptist church, and not all Baptists were like me, thankfully. But here's how we used to describe ourselves. We were independent, fundamental, devil-hating, (laughs) soul-winning, Baptists. We're right and everybody else is wrong, Baptists. And that's the way we were. We were super separatists. We could make an issue. I could make an issue out of everything. Uh, and I did, you know, whether it was the way you dressed or the things you did or uh, what Bible translation you used, and not saying that there aren't good and better and bad translations, but if somebody's reading the Bible, we should be glad they're reading the Bible, and uh, that, that's a good start. But I, I, I could make an issue over everything, and, uh, and I did in my first church. And though we grew to about 300 and, you know, had 40 acres and a Christian school and beautiful buildings and, you know, everything looked good, you know, pretty on the outside, uh, the internal unity was, just wasn't there. Because when you're trying to agree on everything, uh, it's pretty tough. And uh, my kids suffered under it. You know, my kids grew up very... uh, legalistic for a number of years, but uh, they're glad that God rescued me and them from that. Uh, But uh, that's the type of church it was. I found a reason to separate from any and every Christian who was not exactly like I was. So Diane said, what changed? And I thought for a moment... How can I simply and biblically describe the years-long transformation that took place? And this is what I said to her. I said, Diane, I've always believed the gospel, always shared the gospel, uh, but the gospel was just one of many things that I believed. And everything else I believed. I believed as strongly as the gospel, whether it was how you should dress or what your, you know, lifestyle. Should you go to movies? Should you play cards? You know, whatever, whatever it was, I believed everything was just on this equal level. But I got to the place where the gospel became bigger than everything else, and I still believe. A lot more than the gospel. We all do. But I don't believe anything as strongly or more importantly than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I said, all I can say is the gospel became bigger than everything. And when the gospel became bigger, the family of God became a lot larger to me. Uh, Because up till then, the the true family of God were independent, separated, fundamental, devil-hating, soul-winning. We are right, you are wrong, Baptists. But when the gospel becomes bigger, and it should be bigger. The reason it should be bigger is because it's the gospel that brings you into union with God. And it's the gospel that creates your union with other believers. It's not all the other things we believe in addition to the gospel that are important, but they're not what bring us into unity, union with God or union with each other. I want to talk about being committed to gospel community, pursuing gospel community, what it takes in our lives to really have genuine relationships, Fellowship with other believers, beginning in your own church, but extending outside the church. I remember years ago I, I wrote in a, a little blog called uh, "Christian Fellowship on the N Train" because I used to ride the end train a lot when I lived in Brooklyn, and I would ride it uh, all the way up to uh, near Astoria, Queens, and. On the end train, you know, you can, you can ride through Little Russia, or Little Odessa, or a Hasidic neighborhood, or a Polish neighborhood, or a Spanish neighborhood, and I mean, you, you essentially ride through the world, a microcosm be of the world, on the end train. And what I found interesting was I would often meet Christians on the N train. And they may have been reading a Bible in Urdu because they were Pakistani or they were reading it in Arabic because they were Middle Eastern or in Chinese because they were Chinese. But on the entry, you were just glad to find another Christian. Yeah. You didn't care, you know, well, which scheme of es- eschatology do you believe in before, you know, do you believe that Jesus comes... Uh, you know, in the middle of the tribulation, before the tribulation, after the tribulation, or there is no... You're not testing, you know, their orthodoxy on all of your beliefs. You're concerned that they know Jesus. They believe that he's the son of God who died the death that they deserve and rose again to give them a life that they don't deserve. And that makes them brother and sister. This morning, as I oversaw the Lord's table in Feltonville, I looked out at all of those that were coming forward to receive it. Hispanic and African and Afro-American and a few white people and, you know, young and old and poor, and guys that have going to the methadone clinic and, you know, some that are still struggling with crack. And, and uh, but they're coming forward. To share a table, that in most instances, they would never be at a table together, but here they are at the Lord's table. Praise God. And to me, that's a wonderful thing, but I, I think it's only the beginning. And my point at the Lord's table this morning is that true Christian community, needs to move from the Lord's table to your table. Because if this is the only time that the gospel brings you together, if it's not reflected in your fellowship outside of church, then there's something in genuine about uh, our confession of how the gospel brings unity and diversity. So bringing what we have in the Lord's table to our everyday table should be the the goal of our life. So I want to talk about how the gospel transforms us, so that we can pursue and maintain true Christian community. And it's not easy. It's not easy, you'll see, because we're so proud and we like to be right about everything. I know I do. So let's talk about three three things in our text. Let me read the text. And I'm going to talk about our gospel calling, gospel graces, and gospel actions, all of which are necessary to pursue and maintain a gospel community. Our calling, the graces that are necessary, and the actions that are necessary. God's word, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. As a person for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. How do we pursue and maintain Christian community? Gospel calling, gospel virtues, let's call them gospel graces, and gospel commitments or gospel actions. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He's going to tell them, pursue community. Maintain the unity of the spirit. But this grows out of, the motivation for this is this gospel calling we have. Live a life that's worthy of the calling that you've received. Well, what is this calling? Well, we could describe it many ways. You know, the first thing that might come to our mind is we're called to be saved. We're called to be forgiven. We're called to be in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We're called to experience mercy. We're called to experience grace. I mean, all of these wonderful things that belong to our calling, and that's all part of it. I mean, it is all rooted in the person and work of, of, of Jesus Christ. But it's a calling that's really bigger than just me. Because what God is doing is more than just picking individuals out of the world and redeeming them. Though he did that. He reached down into Feltonville and in North Philly in 1970 and plucked me out of Feltonville and ransomed me and redeemed me. And I, I thank him for that. But it's it's bigger than that. The calling that I've received is bigger than, you know, what's happening in John Davis's life. The calling is, what is God up to in this world? Amen. And how does my life fit into all of that? I like the way that Acts 15 describes what God is up to in this world. As... Uh, Peter quotes from the book of Amos, Amos chapter 9. He essentially says that what God is doing is he is calling out of the nations a people for his name. This is what God is up to. Calling out of all the nations a people for his name. This is, my calling is to be part of a people for his name. A diverse people. And man, even this congregation here is diverse. I mean, humanly speaking, you might not find yourselves at each other's table during the week. There would be no reason for some of you to ever get together. But the gospel's brought you together, at least here. But it wants to bring you into true community, into deeper relationship not just in the church but outside the church to be part of the people of God to be part of the family of God. He saved us and called us, Paul said with a holy calling with something sacred about being lifted up out of the the neighborhood that I was in to become part of this grand thing that God is doing of creating a new humanity. A brand new humanity. The humanity that originates from Adam is a failed humanity. And that's the world we live in. It is a divided world. It's a world full of hate and violence and uh, it's a divided world. But Jesus creates a new humanity. Jesus becomes the father of a whole new people. And this is what we are part of. I'm called to be part of the family of God. This is what the gospel calls me to. And if you don't grasp that, if that's that's not what motivates you, then you will simply pursue a Christianity that is highly personal. It's between you and God. You read your Bible. You pray. You try to live a good life. But you will never really be part of what God is doing in creating a whole new humanity, a people for his name. This is our calling. It's a gospel calling. That this is what God wants. This is what Jesus prayed for. That all of those who believe on him might be one. Now that's not... uh, Unbiblical ecumenism. There isn't, by the way, an unbiblical ecumenism, unity for the sake of unity. But there's also a biblical ecumenism. And a biblical ecumenism is that those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord, those who believe in his death and resurrection for their sin and have repented and, and believe in him and have been brought into union with God, are in union with each other. You don't create this union. We'll see that later in our text. This is a union that the Spirit of God created. We can disturb the union. We can try to break it up. But the Spirit's work is to bring God's people into relationship, into fellowship with each other. This is our calling. This is our motivation. So calling, then, is not a matter of gender. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, because in the gospel, you stand on equal ground. That doesn't mean that our roles are completely equal, but in our relationship with God and with each other, we're on equal ground. There are no higher levels of spirituality in, in the Christian life. It's not a question of, Economics, rich and poor, stand on equal ground in the gospel. It's not a question of grace. It's not a question of, of who is more right on some things, because it's the gospel that alone makes us right with God and makes it then possible for us to fellowship with each other. The truth is, we're all wrong on something. Now, we all think we're right, but heaven's going to reveal that we were all wrong. On a lot of things, I know I'm wrong on some things. I'm just not aware of what they are yet. <laughs> but I know time will show that because I look at some of the things I taught and preached early on, and yeah, you know, I'm glad that not a whole lot was recorded back then, <laughs> or they're on cassette tapes and nobody has a cassette player anymore. So it's not a question of doctrinal agreement in every detail. This disturbs some of my Reformed friends, and I am more Reformed than not. But I always say that I would like to keep the gospel so elevated in Grace Church that it is above everything else, that even John Calvin and Arminius could walk in and share the Lord's table together. Because it's the gospel that creates unity. Calvinism doesn't. Man, if Calvinism, well, you know, Calvinists would probably say Paul was a Calvinist, but he wouldn't have described himself that way. What creates unity? The gospel. Keep it up here. Have healthy debate and healthy conversation. And I love that. I love polemics, gracious polemics. I like to debate the fine things, but when it's all over, you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ, and this is more important than all of these other things that we may disagree on. Live with a sense of gospel calling. I was reading the other day, and this author, a pastor by the name of Rohr, made this statement. He says we know that we are called by God when we begin to see the ways in which our story fits into a bigger story, when we have the sense that we are characters in a drama that we could not write for ourselves, and when we see that we are part of something that is more than we could ask or imagine. It is then that we begin to know ourselves as a people who are called by God. We know that we're called by God when we begin to see the ways in which our story fits into a bigger story. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the glory of God and this wonderful that he's doing, of calling out of the nations, of people for his name, a family that loves each other, that is so diverse, that is made up of all of the nations of the world, of every tongue and tribe, but because of Jesus, they love each other. And it's by this that all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. We need a gospel calling, but secondly, out of that gospel calling, we need gospel graces. He mentions three of them humility, meekness, or what he calls gentleness, and patience, or long suffering. Humility. When I began to see the gospel as bigger than everything else that I believe, I had to do some repenting. Matter of fact, I had to go back to a lot of people and ask them to forgive me. Local pastors who believed the gospel but didn't believe everything else. They weren't independent, separated, fundamental, devil hating soul winning we are right, you are wrong, that is. They weren't just like me and I would vilify them because they weren't, they didn't have the truth in every way that I saw it. And I actually went back. Pastors that I still disagreed with on some doctrinal issues. But pastors who were my brother, because I saw the gospel now as bigger. And they were generous and gracious enough to forgive me. I mean, I had literally brutalized some pastors over the the truth. I was fighting for the truth. I remember reading a book by John Frame, the great theologian, and he uh, talked about those of us who fight for the truth. He's, he talked about being a contender for the truth without being contentious. Well, I didn't know that. For me, contending is contentious. And and I'm thankful that every Christian I asked, often with tears, would you forgive me for how I treated you? Because they were real brothers, they forgave me. Humility. That's the problem. Pride. We want to be right. We think we are right. Such pride I had. I like to to strut my stuff theologically. I was smart. I was educated. I could argue. I was good with words. I could put you in a corner. I could come out right. I was on top. I I could win. humility was one of those words that was rarely used by greek writers it was shunned by them it just was not a uh, a quality to be desired in people's lives because in the greek world strutting your stuff was what it was all about it's like new york everybody wants to be a one man or a one-woman woman show. And we're all like that sometimes. We think so much about how we think others are looking at us. We like to strut our stuff. And when we do that, we want to highlight our, our uh, how much we're better, how much we're elevated, Others, whether it's intelligence or education or income or an automobile. I I remember reading Patrick Morley, the the, uh, reformed uh, real estate salesman who, very successful millionaire, who just you know God got hold of his heart under R.C. Sproul, and uh, he just began a ministry to men that's worldwide now. But uh, he said he could remember one day driving down the street in, I forget what kind of car it was, was either Mercedes or Jaguar, and he's sitting there at the light looking at his uh, Rolex Platinum watch. And just being aware of how important he was with his car and his watch and his $1,000 suit. Nothing wrong with all of that except It can get to your head. It can make you think that you are more than you really are. If you're a Christian, you're still a sinner saved by grace. That's all you are. And he said there, that moment, the Spirit of God just convicted him of his pride. He was spreading his stuff. Well, that's what I used to do as a young pastor. I used to strut my stuff theologically because I could have better arguments or more precise interpretations. But in so doing, I was only doing it to elevate myself above others. I wasn't looking for Christian fellowship because the gospel levels us all out. The gospel puts us all on level ground. I wasn't looking for that. I wanted to be above others. I was proud. Humility. Humility is not the debasing of oneself. It's simply the recognition of who you really are in the eyes of God. You don't have to debase yourself. You're human. And if you have anything that's good, thank God for it or he might take it from you. Because whatever good any of us have is more than we deserve. And that should make us grateful. The moment you think you deserve what you have you won't be grateful to God. Live every day believing that whatever suffering you have, it's less than you deserve because you're not in hell. And whatever good you have is more than you deserve. It's God's grace. And thank Him for it. Live humbly before God. You cannot build Christian community without a pursuit of humility, of living with an awareness of who I am in the eyes of God. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Meekness, or gentleness, as it's often translated. One lexicon that defines that word this way. It's that temper of spirit, that accepts God's dealings with us as good therefore without disputing or resisting meekness is that unwillingness to resist to fight i remember being at John MacArthur's church as a when i was beginning to go through a trans, transition and uh, at John MacArthur's church, I I learned a new word. At least, I learned how a word worked. Uh, toward the end of the pastors' conference, he invites pastors to sit in on an elders' meeting. And in that large church, they probably had about fifty elders. And uh, John practices what he what what we've what we describe as he is one among equals when it comes to decision-making. But as you know, John MacArthur is a very strong leader, has very strong opinions about most everything. <laughs> and uh, But of those 50 men, I mean, he's got men that are running corporations. He's got lawyers. He's got some pretty smart guys on that elder. And they would interact and come to a place where they had to make a decision. And so you've got all of these opinions trying to come together to make a decision that they can all support. And so you've got like 35 that are saying, this is what we should be doing. And 15 that are saying, thats I wouldn't do that. John MacArthur taught me the word defer. Defer. You don't have to have your way. You don't have to resist everything that you don't like. You just don't have to have your way all the time. There are other smart people in the world. You can be wrong sometimes. Matter of fact, I know if I'd listen to my wife, you know, half the time... We would have been in less trouble in a lot of ways. Defer. Give in. Don't resist. Don't resist God. Don't resist the people that God puts into your life, wise counselors. Defer. Give in. You do not have to have your way. A spirit of gentleness. A spirit that I don't have to live with this. I need to Fight against everything. I need to push for my way. I need to struggle uh, with, with, with everyone just so that I can win, so that I can have my way. Meekness. Beginning to rest in God's sovereignty. That it's not about you having the ability to be in control and make all the right decisions, but that you can rest in God's sovereignty. Meekness will help you to develop a proper theology of suffering so that you don't have to resist and fight and argue with God when when, when things aren't happening in life the way that you want to. You defer, you, you accept that maybe God is smarter than you in some things. And maybe some of the people that God's put into your life really have something good to say, something helpful meekness. And then he talks about patience. Or, the better word, the better translation of that word, I think, is long suffering. Taking a long time to explode, to react, to respond. Me, early on, I I was not a good listener, and I'm still trying to develop that that discipline because I'm always thinking about how to answer how to correct how to make right you, you, you men know what I'm talking about when you've tried that with your wife you know you don't listen you just you know you're you're ready to set everything right you're ready to fix the situation and that's that's just the way I was I, I, I was a reactor I was a responder. And if somebody did did something that offended me, I wanted to confront it. I wanted to make it right. But this is the word that's used of God so many times. He's long suffering. Doesn't mean that he's not disturbed at stuff that goes on, he's holy. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have a sense of justice that's offended where something needs to be made right, but God puts up with stuff that's wrong. You're living proof of that. You made it for the day, almost. Because if God would mark iniquities, who would stand? Verse Peter says this is is the long suffering of God. This is his patience. Why has not God meted out justice to sinners? He's holding back his response to give sinners space to repent. You know, as a young pastor, I had to—I to get everybody up to speed right away on everything. I couldn't tolerate any any uh, wrong theology, wrong morality. I, I mean, I, I just had to confront everything. I just—I had a hard time taking somebody where they are, knowing, seeing their sin, being offended by their sin, and looking for a good way and a good time and the right moment and the right relationship to be able to talk about it. No, I had to respond. I I had to, if I was disturbed, I had to deal with it now. But those of us who live that way know that that normally doesn't work. If I'm not dealing with the anger of my own heart, then I'm really not ready to confront an issue in anybody's life. So sometimes it's just better to live with stuff than respond to it the wrong way. And it shouldn't bother us that we put up with injustice or stuff that's wrong at times. Because we're waiting We're not ignoring it. We're waiting for a better moment. We're waiting for a redeeming moment. Because God does that with all of us. He lets us go on and gives us space to repent. Now imagine what Christian relationships begin to look like when we we live with this sense of gospel calling. We're part of this thing where God's creating a whole new humanity that's marked by love, and we're going to walk humbly with each other, not strutting ourselves. We're going to we're going to learn to defer. That I don't have to be right or have my way. I can defer. That I'm going to be long suffering. That when I'm disturbed, I'm going to ask God for the grace. To look for the time that would be a redeeming moment in that person's life. Not just a correcting moment, but a redeeming moment in that person's life. By the way, I'm I'm preaching to myself, so if if this hurts you, I'm preaching to myself. I'm still learning all of this. Then there are gospel actions. There's two of them that he talks about. The one he describes as continually putting up with one another in love. Which is all based on humility and gentleness and long-suffering. But this is the action. We put up with chafing relationships. Stuff that bothers us. We live with it. I hope you've learned that in marriage, that you don't need to change, try to change everything that you don't like. You just learn to live with some things because your spouse is doing the same thing, hopefully. But we all know what it's like to have a conversation with somebody who's got really bad breath. Now most of us are too civil they just come right out and say, you know, your breath stinks. Anyway. <laughs> but my grandkids aren't. If I've had too much coffee, or if I had one of those cigars, not a habit, by the way, just a hobby, I've had my grandkids say, Pop, your breath stinks. <laughs> Why well, can you take it from that? I so love them. We have good relationships. But we realize that, you know, in life you just, you can't do that all the time. You, can't, you, you put up with stuff in people's lives because you love them. Because you're not the one to change that. You may be an instrument that God uses in their life, but God is the one who ultimately changes them. That's what love does. It puts up with someone who is less than perfect. And that's you. And that's me. Because every spouse is less than perfect. Every child is less than perfect. Every church member is less than perfect. Every pastor, every elder is less than perfect. In no way are we. When I was in seminary, I was really disturbed one time that my professor gave me a C. It was Bruce Walkie. And I knew he'd made a mistake. And he actually had. It. And I went to his office and I asked him to change it. He said it would be too much, too much work to Change it, but he said, "John, a C on your transcript only tells people that you're human. You don't got to. You don't have to get an A in everything, or even a B. A C just says that you're human. I mean, it was it was pride. I don't want that C in my It's on the, it's on the transcript, but you know what?" Who reads transcripts? <laughs> what pulpit committee? What church? Yeah. Who reads transcripts? But I'm not perfect. And that saves a reminder that I'm not. None of us are perfect. Morally, we're imperfect. Doctrinally, we're imperfect. And true community is a place where people put up With one another in love. Not with resentment. They're not just enduring it. They're loving people despite their imperfections. They're loving them, even though they're doctrinally naive or doctrinally immature. They're just, they're loving them. You're my brother in Christ. We're all on a journey. All the different parts of the journey. Some of us have matured in some areas, but All of us have areas where we are still children, where we are wrong. So the gospel action is to put up with one another in love. It will set you free when in your heart you're going to love people just because they're your brother or sister and not because you agree with them. or or you've corrected them in all of the areas of their life. Secondly, he says we make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The second gospel, action. I find it interesting the way he describes this unity. That the unity is what the Spirit creates. It's something that supernaturally exists. We don't create unity. We can only destroy it or disturb it. If you're a believer in Christ, then by nature of your being brought into union with God, you have been been brought into union with every other believer in Jesus Christ. Now he says, maintain that. Make every effort to let nothing disturb the unity that you have with other believers. Someone wrote these short, this short verse: "To dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story." <laughs> and it is. This is work. This is gospel work to say this is what we're called to, community, to be God's people, to pursue humility and meekness and long-suffering, to let the Spirit of God develop them in our life, to make it a commitment to put up with each other in love, and to make every effort I look back as a young pastor, if I had worked as hard at creating unity with other believers as I did at separating from other believers, I wonder what the testimony for Christ might have been in Doyle Sound, Pennsylvania. I repent of those years. I want that gospel community. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, forgive us tonight for thinking that life is about me and not seeing ourselves as part of your great story. Forgive us for our pride, our unwillingness to defer to others, our impatience, our anger. Forgive us for being unwilling to love and to live in love with those who may offend us in some way. Forgive us for not working hard enough, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I pray for sonship, I pray for Grace Church of Philly. I pray for the Christian community here in Bay Ridge. That we would truly be your people. With all of the differences that may exist, that we would let nothing be more important than the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray in His name.